Okay, so um, we're just uh, two nights away from Purim. On Wednesday night is Purim, which um, in many ways is really the happiest, uh, the day uh, most full of Simcha of the year. It's a very interesting Yom Tov and so many different angles to it. And we've discussed a number of points in the past. We'll discuss a few points about Purim. Um, I think the, the general theme of Purim, and again, it's something I'm sure is familiar to all of us, but is really in the words of the name of the Sefer that we read on Purim, and that's Megillas Esther. Um, Purim is known as the Yom Tev of Esther, the Megillah, the Megillah of Esther, the Book of Esther. And Esther is a Hebrew word that is rooted in the Torah. And in the Torah, the word Hester means hidden, hidden, hidden. concealed. I thought it was a different language, Esther. It also has roots in different language, but its root in the Torah is in Hebrew, as the Pasuk says, in Parshas Vayelach, Vanoichi Hastir Astir Panai. Hashem says that there are times of concealment. And the time of Purim, of all of our Yomim Toivim, it's the only one that's in a state of Golos, from beginning till end, and even after the victory. Right? All of our Yavim Tevim primarily celebrate <coughs> Geula in one form or another, or, or in Eretz Yisrael. Right? Pesach is the Cherus. We left Mitzrayim on the way to Eretz Yisrael. Um, and then you have Hanukkah is when we were in the land of Eretz Yisrael and we were able to be victorious over our enemies. But Purim is when we were in Golos. It was in that period between the two holy temples. Right? There was a 70-year period of Golos. And Purim was right uh, towards the end of that 70-year period. And even when we won, so to speak, in the Purim story, or the at least the decree was nullified and Haman was, was killed, but still we stayed very much in Golos. And um, in fact, you know, Purim is the only umpteen we don't say halal. And the Gemara discusses why don't we say halal? We say halal on Hanukkah, we say halal on Pesach, we say halal on Sukkot. But on Purim we don't say halal. And one of the reasons is because... In the wording of the Gemara, Akati Avde Achashverosh Anan, which means Achashverosh didn't die. We were still Achashverosh's servants even after the Purim story, even at the end of the story. So Purim really is a time of concealment. It was in a time of Golos, it was in a time of concealment. And even more than that, in the entire story, famously, there isn't one clearly miraculous event. You can read the entire book back and forth, nothing, there's no splitting of a sea. There was no ten plagues, to the extent that Hashem's name is not mentioned in the Megillah. So it's a holiday that's all about concealment. Hashem was concealed at the beginning, Hashem is concealed in the middle, Hashem is concealed in the end. It's all done, and we're still in Golos, we're still not with Mashiach, we're still not with the Beis HaMikdash. So it's really a holiday that's born and created in Golos in a state of concealment with no miraculous nature, um, no apparent miracle going on in the entire story of Purim. And here comes the idea, some see it as a cute idea, but that it's called Megillas Esther. And the word Megillah comes from Revelation, Gilui. And it's the job of a Yid to be Megillas Esther, to reveal godliness in places and in times and in situations that are hidden. And that's really where our strength lies. Our strength lies that not only we have the ability to sense spirituality and connect to Hashem, when Hashem, so to speak, knocks on the door and says, I'm here, 
and Hashem gives us miracles like the splitting of a sea or the Beis HaMikdash, but even in a state of Golos, even in a state of concealment, a Yid is able to see through that concealment and see how it's really Hashem behind every um, occurrence and behind whatever happens, and how Hashem works things out for us even seemingly in natural order. A Yid knows and believes that it's Hashem there as well, and a Yid celebrates Hashem even in that situation of apparent concealment. And that's the idea of Megillah's Esther. Our job is to be Megillah, to reveal that which is hidden, Hashem, which is hidden really in every, in every moment of our life, if we only look for it, if we only find it and appreciate it. And that's really what Purim is. It's interesting on that note that Purim could have been really called, that Megillah could have been called Megillah's Esther. It also could have been easily called Megillah's Mardachai. Or Purim. Right, but Purim is the name of the Yom Tov. But I'm saying the Megillah is the, is the story of Esther, but it's also the story of Mardachai. You know, going through the Megillah, Mardachai and Esther really work very much together. Right? Mardachai tells Esther what to do, and Esther listens to Mardachai, and then Esther tells Mardachai what to do. Throughout the entire story, Mardachai and Esther are really leading the, you know, leading the charge and leading Klal Yisrael in how to deal with the events and ultimately with the Geula. Why is it called Megillas Esther and not Megillas Mordechai? And one of the answers that the Rebbe gave, one of the Fabringans is, because who's the one who lived in the greatest level of concealment? Esther lived in Achashverosh's home, in the palace. And Achashverosh was an evil person. He was definitely an immoral person. And Esther, for the sake of Klal Yisrael, for the sake of the Yeshua, and for the sake of fulfilling that tremendous shlichus of saving the entire Klal Yisrael, lives in the ultimate state of concealment. Mordechai, at the end of the day, he spent his time in the Sanhedrin. Mordechai was a tzaddik. Mordechai was the head of the Sanhedrin, or one of the heads of the Sanhedrin. So as difficult as the times were, he at least found himself in a spiritual surrounding. And Esther is concealment within concealment. As we said before from the Pasuk, Anoichi hastir astir, a double concealment. It wasn't just Golos, there wasn't just a time of concealment. She found herself in the midst of the ultimate concealment, the place where Hashem seems to be most concealed, most not around. And there, Esther is able to live the life of a tzaddikis. There, Esther is able to remain true to not just the Klal Yisrael and to Mardukai, but to her mission and is able through her to be the catalyst of the greatest Yeshua, the greatest salvation for Klal Yisrael. So being that the, the, the message of Megillah is so much about um, concealment, and nevertheless being able to find Hashem even in places of concealment, even in situations of concealment, therefore it's forever called the Megillah of Esther, because she's the one who suffered the concealment like no other, and stood up to it, and really brought about the Yeshua for the entire Klal Yisrael. So that's a, a basic idea about Purim. Can I ask you a question? You may. Okay, so you said that um, all the Chagim are related to Gula or Ertisral, mm-hmm. but perhaps uh, part of the seeds of the of the second building of the of the base of Mikdash and uh, was planted because Daryabesh was the son of Achashverosh and Esther, and he's the one that gave the permission for them to go back. Excellent, excellent point, and I'm going to get to that in Yerush Hashem, but that happens after the end of the story of the Megillah. Right, but the seeds It's the seeds, there's no question, there's no question that the seeds of the greatest revelation are planted in the places of greatest concealment, and that's definitely true, and we're going to get to that. But my point was, that's not part of the Purim story that we tell, or that we read, or that we really celebrate, right, right. that's what we know is going to happen afterward, and yes, we're going to get to that as well in Yerush okay. Hashem. Okay. Another idea that I wanted to share that I actually just heard yesterday 
and I really, really appreciated it. So I heard it, um, I was listening um, to a recording of a Fabrengen of the Rebbe of Purim, I'm pretty sure it was from 1970. So I don't know if any of you heard it when it was going on. It was, I definitely didn't when it was happening. Um, but a couple of so, but this was Purim 1970, and yesterday and today with the miracles of monotechnology, which the gifts of monotechnology are perhaps many times not spoken about enough, I'm able to just be there, I'm able to close my eyes and be by Fabrengen that happened, you know, 40, uh, 49 years ago, and it feels like you're there. It's just amazing. So, so I listened to this long sicha of the Rebbe, and I want to give over just a point of it. And the Megillah says... We know in the first chapter that you had the big party of Achashverosh, over a half a year party. It's hard for us to imagine even what that's supposed to mean. But this person obviously understood how to party. And then he made another party for seven days, and that was just for the people of Shushan. Just in case 180 days is not enough. So he makes a party for seven days, and then the Pasuk says, Bayom hashvi'i ketov lev hamalach bayayin. It was the seventh day of the party, and Achashverosh is, uh, feels good with wine, probably drunk. Um, and that's when the whole story calls for Vashti, Vashti is not coming, and Vashti is ultimately executed. And this really sets in motion the story of the Megillah. So the Gemara asks a question, an interesting question, it says, why is it important to know that that was the seventh day of the party? I mean, like, why is that an important part of the story? I mean, it was during the party, and he called, out, he called for Vashti. And here the Megillah, you know, every word in Torah is exact. Bayoma Shvi was the seventh day of the party, and now Achashverosh is calling Esther. So, and not Esther, calling uh, Vashti. Thank you. I'm already a little drunk. Right? Too, too much. Listen, too much water. So the question is, what's this? So the Gemara says, interestingly, and the one who says it in the Gemara is Rava, who is one of the um, sages of the Talmud, and he says that it wasn't just the seventh day of the party, it was the seventh day, it was Shabbos. That, that story happens on Shabbos. That's what the Gemara says. And then he goes on to say something interesting, and he says, and on Shabbos, everyone eats, eats and drinks wine, but here it says the difference between how a Yid celebrates Shabbos, what happens when a Yid, in a proper way, eats meat and drinks wine, versus when a Goy um, just drinks wine. So he says when a Yid drinks wine on Shabbos and, and, and eats a Suda Shabbos, what do, they talk, what do we talk about? It says, Divrei Torah, Shirois Visish Baches. We talk words of Torah, we talk songs and praises for Hashem. What happens when those drunkards by the feast started drinking wine? What do they talk about? Vashti and beauty and women. And, and that's, that's what it went. And that was just the, that's where the conversation went. And that led into the story of Megillah. That's what Rabbi says. Interesting statement. So the Rabbi discussed this whole statement in the Sikha and says, okay, so now we know that the seventh day was Shabbos. And we know that there's two different ways to approach drink, drinking wine. But why is that important in the story of the Megillah? Why is it important to note that that seventh day was Shabbos? And so in the Sikha, the Rebbe discusses it from different angles. He says, well, first of all, on that day, Vashti was put to death. Why was Vashti put to death? We know that day when he called Vashti and she didn't come. And then Haman comes and says, put her to death right away. It says, because so the Medrash tells us, because this was a punishment to Vashti, because she made the Jewish maidservants so, work on Shabbos. Right. 
And by Hashem, everything is Mida Keneged Mida. By Hashem, being that she was being punished for desecrating or making Jews desecrate the Shabbos, so therefore her punishment came on Shabbos. In other words, even though Vashti was a terrible person as it is and had to be out of the way and Esther had to be a place made for Esther, but by Hashem, everything is exact. Even just, so to speak, getting Vashti out of the way, it's connected with her behavior and she was desecrating, she violated or had Gidden violate the Shabbos, and therefore her punishment was Shabbos. Okay, so that's one point. So it's important to know it was Shabbos. Um, but why is it important to know Ketov Lev HaMelech Bayayim that Achashverosh was happy on the seventh day? Again, every detail is important. Why is that important that Achashverosh was happy or he was drunk on the seventh day? Why is that important? So, said the Rebbe, on one level, we have this general interesting rule that whatever the Megillah talks about Achashverosh, there's a deeper meaning and Achashverosh represents... Hashem. And that's a very interesting concept. The name, although Hashem on the one hand is never mentioned in the entire Megillah, but here we have Kabbalistically that whenever the Megillah says Hamelech, which on Pshat level means Achashverosh, on esoteric level is referring to Hashem. Ah, if so, then on the seventh day, Ketov Lev Hamelech Bayayin, so Hashem was happy because it was Shabbos. Because That's the Jewish the people were drinking Kiddush. wine properly. So, so now it's Shabbos. So Hashem is happy because Klal Yisrael is making Kiddush. And therefore Hashem sets into motion the death of Vashti, which is going to lead to Esther, which is going to lead to the Yeshua. So that's another possible explanation on the deeper level of what's going on here. It's the seventh day. So it's Shabbos. So Klal Yisrael is making Kiddush. So Hashem is totally HaMelech. And therefore Hashem sets into motion the ultimate Yeshua. So that's fine. That's a good explanation. But the Rebbe wasn't happy. He says, good, but not good enough. Because we also have to understand it on a pshat level. Right? Everything, even though there is, we know Torah can be understood on so many different levels. And there's so, there's the secrets of Torah and the drush and so on. But we have a general rule, which is, ein mikra yotze midei pshuto. Which means, there always has to be a simple pshat also. You can't just explain it away esoterically. Esoteric is true, but esoteric is a deeper level. We also have to understand it on the simple level. And therefore he asks, so back to square one. Why is it important to know that on the seventh day, Ahasuerus was happy? Like, why is, why is that important? Who cares about Ahasuerus being happy and drinking wine because it's Shabbos? What does Ahasuerus care about Shabbos anyway? Right? So on a pshat level, this Pasuk still leaves room for explanation and interpretation. So therefore, the Rebbe suggested the following. He said... <laughs> no, but... Excited? I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, that's how a sikha was. It was like, answer and ask, and then answer and ask. And like, it was... And this could go on like this, this for bringing us for hours. This is the, you know, and this is Purim evening, and everyone came after their Purim sudas, and the Rebbe just talked to Torah for hours. It was amazing. So, so he said the following. He says, really, this pasuk, you have to see it in context of what it says right earlier. And right earlier in the Megillah, it says that, that, the, that the king commanded that there be a great feast and there should be wine for everyone. And then Megillah says, Kirtzon ish va'ish. That the, that the wine and the drinks and everything should be there according to the will and desire of ish va'ish. What does that mean? Who's, everyone. So everyone. But literally, ish, one ish and another ish. Which ish and ish are we talking about? So it, the Gemara says, ish refers to 
um, Mordechai and the other Ish is Haman. Which means, Ahasuerus wanted everyone should be comfortable by my party. I don't care if you're a Mordechai, I don't care if you're a Haman. Haman, Mordechai was there. He told the Jews not to come, but Mordechai was a minister of the king. So Mordechai was in the palace. So Ahasuerus commanded that everyone's in this party, it's for everyone. He wanted everyone there, and he says, I want Mordechai to be happy here, get him, you know, glad kosher wine, um, special, all the hechsherim, and Haman, get him what he needs. Everyone should be happy. That was Ahasuerus' command. That was a very interesting command, which has reason and depth for it as well. Maybe we'll get to it. We'll see. But that was his command. Everyone should be happy by my party. Okay. Says the Rebbe, once you understand that, let's think about this. He says, the first six days of the party, Haman was happy. He was having a good time. Mordechai doesn't care for wine six days of the week. He is, this is what to do in the world. Yidin are not uh, partiers. That's not our thing. Came the Shabbos, the seventh day, then there's a mitzvah for a Yid also to drink wine and to eat food and eat meat and so on and so forth. So now Mordechai was happy as well. Haman's happy because he's always happy when you give him a party. Mordechai's happy because it's Shabbos. Oh, so on the seventh day, they were both happy. Now it's Ketov Lev HaMelech, so Ahasuerus is happy because everyone's happy. You understand? So that the says on a Pshat level, Ahasuerus wasn't happy until all of his guests were happy. And his guests were Mordechai and his guests was Haman. So Ahasuerus, until as long as Mordechai is uncomfortable, Ahasuerus' edict, his command wasn't in place. But on the seventh day, now that it's Shabbos, and now Mordechai is making Kiddush, and Haman is partying, everyone is enjoying, now Ahasuerus is happy. That's how the Rebbe explained on a Pshat level why it says, Bayom Hashvi, on the seventh day, Ketov Lev Malach Bayad. Says the Rebbe, but, okay, fine. So then why is it important the next piece that when Yidin drink, they say Divrei Torah and, and sing songs to Hashem and praise Hashem, and when Goyim drink, they talk Nivel Peh or they talk uh, crass, um, whatever, uh, things. Why is that important? And here's where the Rebbe comes to the punchline. He says, because, remember, because of these events on that day, that really planted the seeds for the ultimate Yeshua. Right? The beautiful story of the Megillah is that we see how things that happen on one day are there to ultimately put in place something that's going to help and, and make a perfect story later. The whole story of the Megillah is that way, right? You have Esther, uh, uh, what's her name? Vashti being killed. And that doesn't seem to be part of anything. And Esther becomes a queen. And Esther happens to hear, or Mordechai happens to hear the two, um, you know, uh, ministers, Dixon and Sarah's planning this thing. And everything comes together step by step by step. And all this leads into the issue of the Jewish people. But it all started on that day. It all started on that seventh day. How could it be that from the fact that they even were just enjoying and drinking wine, was that the catalyst that should lead and should plant the seeds for the entire Yeshua? That's because of how you didn't drink and how you didn't eat. What happens by a Jewish table? And that's why the, the Gemara says that when Klal Yisrael sits down on Shabbos to eat, uh, to eat and to drink, we don't eat and drink like going. It's not just about being happy and not just about having a good time. It's a time to share Divri Torah. It's a time to, to, uh, sing, to sing songs of praise to Hashem. And that is what led to Hamelach, to Ahasuerus being happy, that led to Hashem being happy, and that set 
in motion the whole thing with Vashti being killed and opening up the place for Esther and so on and so forth. I thought that the whole Susan and the whole line and all that was what led to the catastrophic events that followed, not the Yeshua that followed. Right. I thought that that was the cause of the bad thing, not the cause of the good thing. Excellent. excellent. So in this Seuda itself, there's different angles that are going on, different people that are involved. Mordechai, and the men of Mordechai who were there because they had to be there for Achashverosh, for them, Shabbos, they were making Kiddush and they were having a, a Fabrengen by the Suda in their own place. The Yidin that came, who were, just came because they, they wanted to have a good time, so they were, like, they were acting like the Goyim in the Suda. But Mordechai, when Achashverosh says, I want Mordechai also to be happy, his Achila and Shtia was in a way of a Yid on Shabbos. And therefore, in that Fabrengen, and therefore the Rebbe launched off into a whole long thing about how important it is for us to understand that. That whenever you can come together to celebrate, there always has to be at the center, the Torah. And there always has to be to get center. And the Rebbe says, even though it's Shabbos, so one can say, if it's Shabbos, just eating and drinking is a mitzvah. So why do I also have to say the Torah? It's a mitzvah. We get together on Shabbos, and we have a meal, and we have wine, and we have food, and whatever. So it's a mitzvah. And on top of that, we make Kiddush. And on top of that, we bench. So it's a great idea, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a mitzvah. But no, the idea of this Gemara based on that story is that by a Yid, it can never, even if it's a mitzvah, it can't just be eating and drinking and being merry. It has to be something that has, that's connected with Divrei Torah, and has to be connected with, um, with Shiraz V'sishbachis for Hashem. And in fact, in fact, um, Rebbe goes on to say, he says, and, the same, and in America especially, he says, we have dinners and we have banquets and that's the way we make fundraisers for schools. And it's wonderful, and that's the way it's done, and that's fine. But you have to make sure that at the center of every dinner is a Dvar Torah. And at the center of every banquet, there's songs of, of being with Shabbat Hashem. And the Rebbe said, not just for the appeal. <laughs> he says, not just, you know, in order to make the appeal, I have to say words of Torah. Yidin have to know when Yidin come together, it has to be highlighted by Divrei Torah. That's what. Yes, so, what I'm sorry. Last night, Right. So, I, so I heard this yesterday about three o'clock in the afternoon, and then I came to the dinner, and I was sitting next to Rabbi Wolf, and I said, "I have to tell you a sikha I just learned." <laughs> he says, "Now you tell me." <laughs> no, he says, "Of course we have a dvar Torah. Of course there was a dvar Torah. But that that was the the message that the Rebbe learned from this pasuk of the Megillah, as we know. That one of the things that the Rebbe was so famous for is that every Indian in Torah is not just a nice explanation, but it's a it's a message, it's a lesson for how we have to conduct ourselves. And that's what the Rebbe learned from this Pasuk, the, the importance... how we do Rosh Hashanah and how the guy do New Year's. How they do Rosh oh. Hashanah. How, how we do and how they do New Year's, you know, the guy New Year's. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. It's, it, uh, it's interesting, I saw that the wine and cola, instead of having a reception before their dinner, they had a share. I saw that. Uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? Uh-huh. Yeah, very beautiful. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. Okay, let me share another idea from another Purim. If I bring, and I jot down here a number of ideas. Um, okay, another Medrash. The Medrash says um, that Haman is plotting to destroy the Jewish people. And Haman wasn't, uh, you know, Haman wasn't a child. He was a smart man. He was a very evil man, terrible, terribly wicked man. But Haman comes from uh, lineage. He has yichas. Amalek. Amalek. <laughs> now, Amalek has yichas too. Who does Amalek come Esav, from? Esav, isn't it? Amalek is a grandson of Esav, who is the son of Yitzchak. Yitzchak. 
Yaakov's brother. We're not talking about, you know, uh, just people off the street. We're talking about people who are very well connected in the Jewish uh, Yichus charts, right up to the office. And yet, these are the most evil of people and the, the enemies of Klal Yisrael forever. So, the, pus, the, the Medrash says that there's an interesting Pasuk. There's an interesting Pasuk which says that um, Haman tells Mordechai, he says, your grandfather bowed to my grandfather. Why can't you bow to me? Now, what did he mean by that? Well, that's when Yaakov was, uh, was trying to play K.A. Excellent. So the Pasuk says, in the beginning of Pashtas Vayishlach, right? Well, going back to Pashtas Vayishlach, Yaakov just spent 20 years by Lavan, and he's coming back, and he has his 11 children with him at the time. And, and um, it says that Yaakov prepares that whole big uh, gift for Esau with the camels and all the animals and everything. He sends them. And then Yaakov follows. And then when Yaakov sees Esau, it says, Vatishtachave. He bowed to Esau and to find grace in his eyes. That's what the Pesach says. So Haman, who looks like he knew Chumash, he passed his Chumash class, and he says, Mordechai, why are you so obstinate? You know, your Zaydi bowed to my Zaydi. You know, your Zaydi was Yaakov Avinu, and my Zaydi was Esav, and Yaakov had no problem. Why are you so from? You know, why can't you bow to me like your Zaydi bowed to, to, my, to mine? And of course, Mordechai was not left without an answer. Mordechai says, actually, he says, Yaakov, there was with 11 sons. There was one son who wasn't born yet. Who was Binyamin. that son? Binyamin. That's my Zaydi. <laughs> he says, my baby is Binyamin. Binyamin wasn't part of that story. He was the only one who wasn't there, and he never bowed. But that's... Yishimini, Mordechai ben... Right? Mordechai comes from Binyamin, the youngest of the Shvatim. Binyamin had Sadik. It's interesting that Binyamin is, is known from all the 11, from all the 12 Shvatim, Binyamin says was a Sadik. It's called Binyamin had Sadik, and Binyamin never sinned. It says in the Gemara, one of the people in history who never sinned was Binyamin HaTzadik. He was this tremendous Tzadik. And his great-grandson is Mordechai HaYehudi. As the Megillah says, he's called Ish Yemini. And Yemini comes, he comes, he means he comes from Binyamin. So that's what the Medrash says. But of course that Medrash requires explanation. Like, what's the depth of this? You know, it's, it's cute. You know, Esau says, your Zaydi did. He said, my Zaydi wasn't born yet. So it's a cute back and forth. But obviously there's something deeper to that. And we'll understand that in the context of another Medrash. Also, it's all in the, in the Medrash Rabbah and Megillah. And it says, um, so of course, Haman goes into a rage. Mordechai is not bowing to him. So it says, in the Megillah says, Vayivez Be'enov. How do you say Vayiv? Vayivez. It was, it was like shamed in Haman's eyes just to, just to um, take revenge in Mordechai himself. Rather, he wanted to take revenge of all the Jewish people. So, but the wording here is important. The wording in the Megillah is Vayivez Be'enov. Like, Vayivez is like, Bizayon, exactly. Despicable? No, it was an embarrassment for him. He was embarrassed to just take revenge from Mordechai. It wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough for him. He needed to take revenge of all the Jewish people. But the wording is Vayivez. Vayivez Be'enov L'Shloachia. Says the Medrash. Hashem says to Haman, Bazui ben Bazui. He says, you, you're, for you it's embarrassing. You're a shamed, embarrassed one. The son of someone else who was shamed and embarrassed. Where else does it say in the Torah, Vayivez? 
Okay, quickly, let's think through the entire Torah. Um, who said, Vayivez, so Esav, Vayizev Esav Eshabechorah. When Yaakov Avinu, when Esav comes, you know, back in history, in the beginning, over there in Parshas, what was it, in, in, in uh, uh, Toldos. So Esav comes back, comes home, and Yaakov is cooking the lentils, and Esav says, give me some lentils. And Yaakov says, oh, no problem, if you give me the Bechorah. If you give me the, the uh, birthright. rights, the birthright, the Bechorah, and the Pasuk says, Vayivez Esav es ha-Bechorah. Esav said, who cares about the Bechorah? It's nothing. And he shamed the Bechorah. And here the Medrash connects the dots. Wow. Because every word in Torah is exact. And says, you said, Vayivez be'enav l'shloach yad b'mardachai levado, that for you, um, Haman, it's just a bizoyon, just to take revenge from one. Your grandfather was mevaze already, my bechor, the bechor. And therefore, the, the handwriting is on the wall already that you're not taking revenge from Mordechai. That's what the Medrash says. And as so many Medrashim, it's sort of cryptic. Like, okay, so there's two words connecting, vayives and vayives, but what's the deeper meaning? So we already have two connections here where Haman and his great-great-grandfather Esav are being connected. Right? Are we following? Yeah. The first one was when when um, Haman tells Mordechai, you know, your Zaydi bowed to my Zaydi. Right? So Haman is already connecting himself to Esav. And now we have the business with Vayivez. So what's going on with Haman and with Esav and with bowing and with the Bechorah? What's the whole story? So in, a, in, in one of the Purim Fabrangians, the Rebbe explained it in the following way. And we'll say it in short. And that is, there's a general idea in Hasidus, which is that Esav, on the one hand, is a Russian, obviously. But on the other hand, for some reason, the Torah gives Esav a lot of space. Not just space. Yitzchak wants to bless Esav, and Yaakov is coming to Esav, and Yaakov is sending Esav gifts. It's very unclear when you read the Torah, so what's the story with Esav? He had some redeeming qualities. So, what were those redeeming qualities? He was, he was very big, uh, keep it up, aim. keep it, um, he was very outstanding son. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So the Gemara says that Esav had that zuchus. But where does that come from? So what it says in Chesidus is that Esav comes from really a very high source in Kedusha. And that high source in Kedusha, which Kabbalistically is called the world of Tohu, um, Point is, it comes from a very high source, which in this world falls very low. And it's up to us to um, elevate those sparks that fall into the low places and bring them back to Kedusha. That's a general rule that applies to, uh, we eat, right? We eat food. Um, the Rizal tells us, why do we have to eat food? We're, it would seem we're people, we're on a higher level than the food. So why is it that the food gives us sustenance? So he explains because within the food there's sparks of Kedusha that are higher than ourselves. It's just that it requires us to elevate them. So, so by making a brach, they come from a higher place. They fall into this world. This is the whole concept of the nitsotsos, the sparks of Kedusha that are all over this world. That we, through our avoda, we, through our involvement in this world in proper ways, and we make a bracha on the food, and then we use the energy for a mitzvah, so we're able to elicit and we're able to refine and elevate all of the sparks of Kedusha that are in all the parts of this world, and by connecting them back to Kedusha, they actually bring us to a higher place, because they come from higher places. And the same is with Esav and Yaakov. 
The reason why Esav is the Bechor, he was the firstborn, is because he really comes from a very high, high source in Kedusha, but coming down in this world, he falls into bad places. But Yitzchak was trying to elevate him, and Yaakov was trying to elevate him. They were trying to elicit and connect to those sparks of Kedusha within them. That's what was going on with Yitzchak and Yaakov and Esav. Haman is from the same tree. Haman comes from the same place, and Haman knows that. Haman knows that he has some very powerful spiritual powers. So he says, Yaakov, I'm, I'm greater than you. I have within myself, I'm rooted in places of Kedusha that's greater than you, more important than you, more special than you, and therefore you should bow to me. Just like your grandfather did, Yaakov understood that Esav had something he didn't. That's why Yaakov bowed to Esav. That's not why he did it. So... <laughs> No, he did it to appease him because he was ready to kill him. I understand. I understand. But if that would, if there wouldn't have been a proper purpose for him to do it, then he wouldn't have done it. Then it wouldn't be the right thing for him to do. The fact that Hashem made it that he should bow to him is because spiritually that had to happen. Spiritually, there was something in Esau that Yaakov needed. And it didn't start with Yaakov. Yitzchak also wanted to give brachas to Esau for the same reason. Yitzchak was always looking to give brachas for Esau. And Yaakov was looking to connect to Esau. So we have this idea, this concept, that there is greatness or great holiness hidden in places of badness. And Yitzchak is looking for it, and Yaakov is looking for it. So Haman says, me too. I also want a piece of the cake. right? I, I also... I'm also, I have great holiness in me, and I come from Esau, and I come from Yitzchak, and I had that Kedusha in me, bow to me. And here Hashem says, no, but your grandfather Esau, he wasn't interested in it. You're not interested in being elevated. You're not interested in being uplifted and refined. You want to stay bad. Of course, within you there is goodness. And within you, if we'll be able to, we'll elicit that goodness. You know, it's interesting. In the very end of the Purim story, Haman is actually contributing. Haman is the one who brings the clothing for Mordechai and the horse for Mordechai. Ultimately, Haman's home. Against his will, though. Against his will. But he's contributing, whether he likes it or not. Because ultimately, the Kedusha that's hidden within him is going to be taken from him. Um, what happens in the very last, second to last chapter of the Megillah? As base Haman... Nasati la Esther. That Haman's home is given to Esther. That means what Haman's uh, his possessions become the possessions of Esther and a Mordechai of Kedusha. But that's only when the badness is gone. As long as you're bad, as long as you're remaining a Haman, no one's bowing to you. So Haman thinks, well, I have some sources in Kedusha because I do have sources in Kedusha. So you bow to me and I'll get my way because I have sources in Kedusha. The answer is no. When, yes, you do have Kedusha in you, when you're willing, when you'll allow, when you'll change, when you let yourself be refined, when you let us get the Kedusha from you, then we'll celebrate you. Until then, you're Haman. And that's what Hashem tells Haman, Vayivez Be'enav, your grandfather already, Esav, he also didn't respect the Kedusha in him. He didn't respect the fact that he was a Bechor, the fact that he had that level of Kedusha. When you don't respect the Kedusha in you, it might be there, but it's going to have to be taken from you against your will. So ultimately, yes, it will be taken, and the Kedusha will be, will be received from, um, from Haman, but not in the way that he wants, not when he remains evil the way he is. 
and that's how the Rebbe explained those Midrashim connecting Haman with Asa, with Yaakov, with Mordechai, in that way of Kedusha oh, within Kripa. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Besides, I have to ask you a question. I don't want to ask it, but I have to. Because it doesn't sit right with me. So then why did uh, Yaakov bow down to Asim if he was Vayib as the Bechorah? So why did he bow down? What, what, what did he have going for him then? The answer is because Yaakov at that point felt that he was able to, um, that he was able to be Mavara, able to refine Asim. That's why Yaakov was sending things to Asim. Refine him or appease him? He wanted to refine him. He wanted to reveal the goodness within Esav. Yaakov judged his brother in a way that he thought he was better than he was. That's why Yaakov wanted to meet Esav. Right? Yaakov wants to meet him. Yaakov I thought wants he knew to he was coming him. to see him because he was coming back to his territory, his turf. True. But Rashi says Yaakov thought that he had already done shuva. Yaakov thought that he was already better. And that's why he sent the malachim to him. They came back and said he didn't. Yaakov was going to try again. Yaakov wasn't giving up on Esav. And ultimately... Um, ultimately, good things came out of Esau, right? Some of the greatest gerim of the Jewish people, some of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people are descendants of Esau. Because there was that Kedusha within Esau. But Esau, in his lifetime, wasn't willing, wasn't, wasn't um, you know, he didn't take the bait, so to speak. He didn't, Yitzchak tried and Yaakov tried, because there was great Kedusha within him. Um, but it didn't come out till much later, you know. Who were the people that came from that? Um, Rabbi Meir, for example. Rabbi Meir, who was one of the greatest Tanoim of the Mishnah, was a descendant from Rome. Um, and others. So Rome um, is from Esau? Yes, 100%. Esau is a Romi. No, no, no. No, no, that's a different child of Esau. Amalek was from Alifa's son of Esau. Esau had different descendants. But Amalek is from Esau. Um, interestingly, the Gemara I says... Yafes was from... Uh, that's, was that's, from that's, Greece, that's Greece. That's Greece. That's Greece. The, the Gemara says, shel Haman lindu brak. That Haman had grandchildren who were Torah teachers of Nebrak. That's what the Gemara says, which just tells us that even these greatest Rishayim, there was something there, but they were Rishayim, and they didn't allow that goodness to come out. And that's what, that's what this interchange is all about. Haman says, I'm, I, I have Kedusha in me. Mm-hmm. You know, many times you have people say, I know, I, I, you know, I have a great-grandfather who was a rabbi, you get, get to listen to me. He says, yeah, when you'll act like your great-grandfather will talk. The fact that you have a great-grandfather as a rabbi doesn't give anybody the right to change what it says in the Torah. So Haman says, I'm, I'm, I'm a big tzaddik. I, I have Kedu, I'm Esau's grandson. And he says, no, you know, when, you'll, when you'll do tshuva or when we'll, you know, when we'll be able to elicit those sparks, that's when, that's when. But the Rebbe said that we said all the sparks have been elevated. That, that was such a right. profound... Unbelievable statement. A tremendous, tremendous statement. Yeah. The Rebbe says that so, through all the years of Gullahs... How come we can't see all that Kedusha flying around us? That's what the Rebbe asks. The Rebbe <laughs> says, so why, you know, why don't we see it already? 100%. Well, things are happening, but they're not going as fast as we would like. <laughs> I still have such a hard time. I remember we had this discussion years ago, Rabbi Silverberg. I have such a hard time when we you're saying that there's... Haman comes from a high place, and Hitler, and Amalek. Hitler came from a high place, I'm just saying, like, all of these are shining. He should be in a low place, never mind a high place. All of the Arabs that want to kill us. I mean, it's like, it's so hard for me to accept that. It's very, it's like, yeah, right. it's like the brother. Bad. That's it. Mm-hmm. I can't accept that yeah. they come from a high place. The answer, level. the answer, the answer it's, is it's that they, that stuff. they are bad. The way they act is bad. The way they chose to be is bad, 100%. Everything in this world is somehow part of an infinite plan of Hashem. Everything comes from there. 
that person is 100% bad, acting bad and has to be destroyed and has to be punished. And Haman had to be destroyed and was destroyed and Esau was destroyed. But somehow he is also playing out part of Hashem's plan. And that is that spark of Hashem that's within him that he's not relating to, he's not connecting to it. But nothing, a basic belief of Yiddishkeit is nothing happens without Hashem's plan. Right. There isn't yeah, yeah. there isn't any other like source. There is something there is something there is a spark of kedusha that's lost in them so to speak. Can that's behind what's going on. Look at it as a possible potential. Well, it's definitely instead, it's definitely a know, potential. Instead of I think you know that they right. they didn't it's, but, I just, but look the, the famous um poem where the rabbi had people scream hurrah and Stalin died. 1953. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean that's, that's amazing. Listen, the idea of this Torah is exactly that. Haman says, I'm a high level. He says, no, you're not. Not as long as you're Haman. Mm-hmm. Right? Haman was saying, listen, I have, it, I have that spark of Kedusha. That's exactly what he was saying. Right. And the answer is, no, you're Haman. That level, when you'll be destroyed, when, when they'll be able to take it out of you. But as long as you're Haman and you're acting as Haman, then you don't relate to that high level within you. That's exactly what this Torah is really saying. What did saying. you do that was evil before... What, before he did that thing with Mordecai, Haman was evil from the beginning. He was Haman was a descendant of Amalek. I mean, he became the, his famous evils in the Torah is in the story of the Megillah. But Haman was an evil person. I mean, even earlier, Haman was involved. If you go back in the story, in the history behind the Megillah, Haman was involved in stopping, in rescinding the permission to build the second base Amikdash. Achashverosh's father had given permission for the second base Amikdash to be rebuilt. Oh, really? Yes, and they had started. When Ahasuerus comes to power, Haman gets Vashti to get Ahasuerus to stop the building of the second base Amikdash. She was the granddaughter of She was. So Haman and Vashti are on one team getting Ahasuerus to rescind the permission to build the second base Amikdash. And all this is before the story of the Megillah. It's not even in the story. So these two are these are arch enemies of the Jewish people before it even started. Is this on Midrashim or what? Yeah, yeah. Midrashim with the Megillah, explaining the story of the Megillah behind this behind the scenes of the story of the Megillah. Interesting. And then, so what happens? So Haman gets Vashti to stop Achashverosh from building the Besamikdash. Ultimately, Haman has Vashti killed because Haman is the one who tells Achashverosh to kill Vashti. So really, Haman or Haman is behind Esther becoming the queen, who's ultimately going he's to be also, destroyed. He's two-faced. <laughs> At least two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another idea. Um, the Madras, we still have time, right? What time? I don't know what time it is. Um, it's five to Okay, another one more quick idea. Eight twenty. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't start till quarter after. <laughs> one more idea. So the Madras says, "Here's another another one of those Madrasians that says like this this statement that's hard to understand." It says, "Lema Haman Dome." Lema Haman Dome. The Major says, what can Haman be compared to? I can check. Sorry. So the Major says that Haman is like a bird. Bird? A bird. A bird of prey. A bird who's at the, who's, um, who created a nest at the side of the water. And then the water, the tide comes up and, um, how do you say? Sweeps away. Sweeps away the nest. 
So the bird gets really angry at the sea and says, okay, I'm going to get the sea back. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to empty the sea from all the water. I'm going to take all the water from the sea and put it on the dry land. So the bird is going back and forth, taking a drop of water, another drop of water, another drop of water, taking all the water onto the dry land. So too, says the Medrash, I, I, I'll read the words. It's one of those bizarre Medrashim. It says, the, the bird makes the nest on the uh, shore. The water swept away the nest. So the, the bird gets angry and he says, I'm not moving from here until I turn the sea into dry land. So the bird is going back and forth taking drops of water. Until the friend of the bird comes to the bird and he laughs at him and says, you're not going to be able to empty the sea of its water. It's impossible. So the marshal says that Haman's desire to destroy Klal Yisrael is the same desire as the bird to empty the sea of its water. And Hashem comes to him and says, you think that you're going to be able to destroy Klal Yisrael? And here comes the matter says, Hashem says, even I couldn't. Because after the story of the Egel, I wanted to destroy them, and Moshe Rabbeinu didn't let me. That's the Medrash. That's the Medrash. So this bizarre story. Haman is like the bird who wants to empty this water, the sea from the water, and Hashem tells Haman, you want to destroy the Jewish people, even I can't. What's going on? You know, it's bizarre. The whole mushal, everything about it is bizarre. What does it mean? So again, in a Purim Fabring in one of the years. By the way, Purim Fabrings were always hours and hours, and they never really got into it, and, and there was talk, and deep explanations on the Megillah, and so on and so forth. Everything I've told you tonight is from different selections of Purim Fabrings. So the Rebbe explained like this. He says, what's the story with the sea and the water and this? He says, Pasha, this will understand it in the context of another very famous metaphor of the Gemara. That is the metaphor that Rabbi Akiva gave. Rabbi Akiva famously lived in the time of the Romans, and he taught Torah to the masses. And they came to Rabbi Akiva and said, Rabbi, he says, don't you know that teaching Torah is punishable by death, by the Romans? And ultimately, Rabbi Akiva was killed by the Romans. And they said, how could you teach Torah? Don't you know it's punishable by death? Save yourself. Stop teaching Torah. And Rabbi Akiva gave the marshal the metaphor that is, he says, the metaphor of the fox and the fish, Right? The fox is on the on the uh, walking on the on the seashore and he oh, sees yeah. the fish running and the fish are swimming frantically and he says why are you swimming frantically and the fish say because you know the uh, the fishermen are trying to catch us so we're trying to escape them the fox says I have a simple idea simple idea come out of the water come with me then the fishermen won't catch you outside of the water and the fish says you know you silly fox here at least I I can live I might be killed but <laughs> I have life. Outside of the water, I have no life. So Rabbi Akiva said the same thing as with Klal Yisrael. He says, the Romans might kill me for teaching Torah, but as long as I can teach Torah, I'm in the water. I'm alive. If I stop teaching Torah, I have no life. So it doesn't matter if they kill me or not. That was Rabbi Akiva's mushroom, Rabbi Akiva's uh, metaphor, many, many years after the Purim story. Says the Rebbe, what do we see from that story? That a Yid, water is Torah for a Yid. Now let's come back to Haman. Haman was the bird who wanted to take the water out of the sea. What does that mean? Haman knew that he's not going to be um, successful against Klal Yisrael 
when we're studying Torah and doing mitzvahs. He knew that. Again, Haman wasn't anybody's fool. Haman, he knew history. History was the Jewish people survived. He said, okay, I have a way. I just got to take the water out of the sea. I got to take them out of their Torah. I got to take the Torah away from them. And that's why he contrived the whole thing. And that's why he was behind that great meal of Achashverosh. He said, let me get the Jewish people to forsake the Torah, to forsake the mitzvahs. Then I'll be able to do with them like the fox wants to do with the, to do with the fish. That's the story with the bird and the water. He's trying to take the Torah away from the Jewish people. Comes Hashem and tells someone, you silly one. You think you're going to accomplish that? Even I couldn't. Meaning, even when the Jewish people sinned, and therefore they were rightfully deserving of punishment, still Moshe Rabbeinu was able to come and get them to do tshuva and get them to reveal their connection to me so that ultimately they'll never be destroyed. So even back then, this you know, you're not the first one that got the Jewish people to sin. They've sinned before you. But they have a Moshe Rabbeinu. They always have a tzaddik who's going to come and awaken them to do tshuva. And then the water is right back where it started. They're back in the water and there's nothing you can do. And that's what happened. Mardechai Yehudi comes and yes, the Jewish people lapsed a little bit in their connection. Mardechai comes, Esther comes, they bring the in to tshuva, they bring the in to fasting, to tefillah, and Haman is history. And that's what that whole mushal was about. So Haman was the bird. He wanted to take them out of the waters. And Hashem says, you'll never, ever get there. Even when they were sinned so severely, and I said, okay, it's time to punish them. Moshe Rabbeinu came and had them do tshuva. Moshe Rabbeinu revealed in them their inner connection to me that never, ever, that never, ever ultimately gets lost. And therefore, your plot will never, ever happen, as happened in the story of Purim, and as happens to Klal Yisrael throughout. That after we have, we have failings and we have flaws, individually, collectively, but ultimately the Jewish neshama comes through, and the tzaddikim inspire us and awaken us and help us connect and reconnect, and we're able to Megillas Esther, even in states of, of, uh, of concealment, we're able to reveal that interconnection we have with Hashem, and we're able to find Hashem in every place, and we're able to see Hashem's Yeshua in every situation as well. So Hashem should give us the ability to be able to celebrate Purim with Emes Simcha, every person to have Emes Simcha, and Hashem should give the ability to have Emes Simcha by every person personally in their own lives, in their Mishpachas, and in Klal Yisrael, and collectively to celebrate with Mashiach Sidkeinu, Mes Hashem, this Purim. Amen. 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 Am